Welcome back to the Original Gangsters Podcast. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato here in studio with my co-conspirator, Scott Bernstein. Hey, now. And just want to thank everyone for listening to the podcast. Please follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We have another great episode today. And this is interesting. It's actually the, the second time, technically, we've, we've tried to have Ricardo Morales on. And the first time we had Rick on, we were, we were just introducing ourselves. And literally a storm came in out of nowhere and blew out the power <laughs> in the whole studio. And I had to... And Mother Nature didn't want us Nature, interviewing right. Ricky Morales that day. The CIA creating weather. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So it seemed, it seemed interesting. So anyhow, but uh, we but we've got we've got Rick back with us, and we're and we're happy to have him on. And actually, the reason why we're interested in this story is his. We're going to talk about his father, Ricardo Morales, aka Monkey Morales, just a fascinating person. And Scott and I were talking off air about like the Tom Clancy novels, and like he's a guy. Monkey Morales is a guy that could be. He's like a character that Tom Clancy could have created, <laughs> right? Kind of conjured, right? But this guy lived. I mean, I say it all the time: lived a movie script. Yeah, but this guy lived five. No, that's right. I mean, uh, <laughs> most most people that we have on lived uh, a movie and and maybe a uh, director's cut after the movie. Um, Monkey Man Morales, you know, lived five or ten movie scripts. Uh, Jimmy, why don't you just break down for the audience uh, a quick synopsis of who? Yeah, he was. I mean, um, this is an individual that comes. He's uh, Cuban. He comes out of the uh, Cuban Revolution, and he's kind of playing both sides. And he gets involved in this world of covert operations, and he becomes a CIA asset. And he's all over the world, Latin America, Florida. And he's, he's at this nexus of um, drug lords, CIA operatives, leftist guerrillas, uh, right-wing militias. And, and he's even connected to the JFK um, assassination. Um, and we'll, we'll explore that, too. So... He's connected to the cocaine, cocaine cowboys. cowboys of the eighties. He's a he's a he's a double agent, triple agent playing. playing I was gonna say I don't even know if saying double agent does no. injustice. It's uh, it's one of those things. Yeah, everybody gets that confused. I would call it he was a uh, his own agent for yeah. his own. Yeah. He was working all the angles and uh, playing everyone kind of against each other to the middle to his own benefit. Uh, yeah. He, yeah. he died. Uh, an untimely death, uh, a, a violent death that uh, unfortunately, you know, befalls quite a few people that that uh, exist in, in this uh, criminal political milieu, if you will. Yeah, it's dangerous. Yeah, that's, and that's definitely something we have to hit on, There's some too. mystery surrounding uh, his murder and then the people that maybe were murdered after him. A couple people, uh, a couple bodies dropped in the, in the years that followed. So let's dive into it. We have uh, Monkey Man's son, Little Monkey Man. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and Rick, and this is uh, Scott reminded us yesterday's the uh, anniversary of the JFK assassination. So this is this is good timing for this episode. Rick, thanks for thanks for joining us. Oh, no problem. I'm glad I could make it on. Yeah, and so you 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 remember your dad well. You've researched the case better than anyone. So. Um, you want to just start off with sort of the, the beginning of your, your father's journey. Just how did he, how does he get involved in this murky world of politics, covert ops? Um, sure, start sure. from the beginning. Sure. So when my dad is a teenager in Cuba, they, uh, the school that he was going to figures out that he has these uh, abilities like photographic memory, the ability to read and remember things for a prolonged period of time, numbers especially. So he has moved into a uh, a, a military school, let's say, the government-run school. And there he becomes an uh, agent for the Cuban government, which at the time is Batista still. It's before Castro takes over. So then while the revolution is going on, he's already working for the Cuban. It's called the G2, I believe they call themselves, which would be the like the FBI here. Um, and so he waited as the revolution occurred to see which way the, you know, uh, the dice would fall, and uh, the family went to the United States, but he stayed behind with his brother. Eventually, Castro takes over, and the shift starts going down where Castro is going to go to the communist side because the United States ain't letting him do whatever, you know, he wants to control Cuba. You got to get the corporations out of Cuba. Um, we're taking over all the land, all the, you know, sugarcane companies, all the stuff that makes money is now nationalized Cuban government owned. All the banks. 
seized all everyone's money. Any criminals that uh, from America that were doing business in the banks there lost all their money. And the casinos and hotels too. Everything. So the United States ain't bank, ain't, ain't going to back the government of Castro. So then Castro decides to go communist. The only reason he goes communist is because that's who's going to pay the bills. It's either or. It ain't, he doesn't have uh, the pride of being a communist. He was just a dictator. And it was geographically... Um, yeah, perfect uh, for them. Yeah, it, it it dovetailed with what the communists, uh, you know, out of Russia were trying. They were trying to get as close to America as possible. And Cuba is, you know, <laughs> what, a half-hour boat ride? Yeah, 90, 90 miles from Key West, so you can nuke them. They won't even know it's happened. So, yeah, so at that point, they, uh, they the, the incoming people that are taking over are cleaning slate of the previous uh, government. So my dad at some point figures out they're coming to kill him. So he ends up in a, getting in a gunfight, shoots the guy that's coming to kill him, kills him, and ends up in the Brazilian embassy somehow and spends 83 days there before they get him out of the embassy. So you got to figure at this point, he's already made American connections because as a G2 agent during Batista's time, the CIA was all over that island. I want the audience to understand there's a lot of nuance here. The, the CIA was backing Batista at the time. Correct. The U.S. was backing Batista. Correct. Yeah, so at that point, my dad is, you know, they're going to kill him, so he escapes, makes it to the U.S. As soon as he gets to Miami, they're waiting for him to recruit him. So upon arrival in Miami, they start training him, the FBI, CIA, whoever. I always say in Spanish, they have tres letras. The three letters. Any agency that has a name with three letters, they're up to no good. FBI, CIA. <laughs> In Spanish, we just say la tres letras, the three letters. So they train them on, on making bombs. So the thing is that you have all these factions in, that left Cuba, are now in Miami, and are plotting to go, how can they overthrow the island so they become leaders? Because everybody forgets in the minutia of the Cuban thing that the government that left and went to Miami, the people were Batista followers. That was a dictatorship. They weren't nice people. They had slaves. They did a lot of bad things. So you can't give them any credit for being good guys. And then Castro comes in, overthrows the dictatorship and does the same thing. So they're all the same, you know, equally as bad. Right, the US was going by that, that old uh, expression, you know, dance with the devil you know. And Batista yeah. was the devil they knew, uh, and and Castro was the, was the devil they didn't. That was you know tied to the to the communists and the red red revolution. So you have all these Cubans that want to go back and take over the island, but they're not going to take over and have democracy. They're going to go back to the, the Batista days. It's whoever is next takes over, and that's how they run things. So my dad is takes it upon himself. I guess he be, in his own mind, this is the way my dad was that he's going to decide. Which way is the, the, who's doing the right way and who's going about it to do the wrong way. So he starts giving information on one faction, helping other factions. They think he's working for them where they're actually work. He's not. So he's working all sides to make sure that, that he gets the outcome that he thinks should be the best one. Which is getting rid of Castro, but democracy and not another dictator, which was what those people were trying to, to do. Yeah, it's interesting. It is complicated. Uh, I don't want to bore everyone with the political science here, but because the United States actually was actually making overtures to Castro, they were thinking if we can get a better deal with Castro than Batista, we'll, we'll turn on Batista. But, but as both of you have pointed out, Castro started getting seduced by Comandante Che Guevara and, and the Soviet influence. So then, so then the United States will say, well, Batista is the lesser of two, but they, it's not like they were like in love with Batista early on either like they were willing to willing to play ball with Castro but and that's a good metaphor because Castro was a baseball player <laughs> a pitcher <laughs> pitcher right, right. They'll play with whoever they can they can do whatever they want with but they couldn't control they weren't going to be able to control whoever took over the island anyway it's they're going to do whatever they want it just came all down to money at the end when the when they nationalized all the uh, all the the sugar cane and tobacco and everything, and they took it away from the and the petroleum and whatever they were had there. So, um, so my dad starts blowing stuff up, and in Miami, he's 
you know, blowing, blowing, they're blowing anything that does business with Cuba gets blown up. So like Air Canada, their offices got blown up, but everything happened at night. Nobody was in the buildings. One of the guys was my uncle. He was one of the bombers. He ends up going to jail because they found his fingerprints on one of the bombs that didn't go off. So my dad, they find a fingerprint, take him into jail, then find out he's a FBI and CIA. So he never goes to jail for anything. And uh, has a couple of running battles. He does kill a couple of people that are trying to kill him at that point. They're all trying to kill a lot of people trying to kill from different factions. So he does kill, I think, like two or three people, different shootings, but never gets arrested for any of them. Then, uh, then he goes to the Congo to fight the communists in the Congo. The Cubans, Cuba has sent troops to help uh, in the Congo. They were fighting for, for, uh, um, to become communists also. And the, the CIA sent 20 Cubans as a paramilitary team over there to see if they could help. And then there was an occasion where there was a village that was being held hostage. There was a bunch of missionaries and, and whatnot. And they asked the Belgians, and I think they asked the British or something. I can't remember which other group was there to, uh, to, to, do, to mount a rescue operation. And they said they couldn't do it. They weren't going to risk their people. And then... Uh, the CIA troop leader there asked uh, the guys if they were going. The Cubans said, yeah, we'll go. So they went in and rescued a bunch of people. My dad got shot. He was riding on the back of a Jeep with a 50 cal. So he gets shot, but he makes it all the way back, and they rescued a bunch of people. Some died. Some didn't make it. Was this the 70s? Was this the 70s, mid-70s? Hey, 68, I believe. Six, oh, Congo. okay. That was that early. Okay. It was in the 60s and uh, late 60s. And... Um, so from there, he comes back to the States and goes back to work for the CIA, FBI, whatever, with more bombs. And everything is Cuba-focused at this time still because they're still – he goes to Europe for a while to do uh, – to train. He trains with the Mossad. They do some Nazi hunting in Europe. They do uh, – he does, uh, like, Monuments Men where there's – he's uh, retrieving things that were stolen and returning them to – at that point, he receives a medal of honor, a medal of appreciation from the Israelis, from Golda Meir, for his service helping the Mossad and stuff. Well, I didn't realize I didn't realize that about the war criminals hunting war. I didn't realize he was involved in that. That that's really interesting. Involved in that, he was uh, because in South America, when we get to the Venezuela part, um, the uh, there's a lot of neo-Nazi and Nazi. Yeah. South America that were controlling the drug trade when it was first getting big because people think, oh, look at these peasants. They created this great empire of cocaine dealing. But there has to be money and an operation put in place and that was being controlled by somebody else. And it turns out that a lot of that in Bolivia especially was neo-Nazis and former Nazi families and descendants of other ones that had continued into South America and now we're doing that to destabilize the United States, flow drugs and make money. Yeah, I mean so, uh, Klaus Barbie uh, in in uh, Bolivia, but um, South America, as you point out, was known as a haven for war yeah. criminals and ex-Nazis. They, those governments were very sympathetic to the fascist, fascist Italian fascist, and German Nazis. Yeah, yeah, they found themselves they, they considered themselves to be the same, and well, you know, it all goes back to that Spanish imperialistic. Uh, mode of thinking the Europeans brought to South America and the, the white people there think they're white Europeans. Yeah. So they're very, very uh, nice to anybody from Europe. Yeah, yeah, right. They have their own problems with racism towards indigenous populations. And yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, yeah. So after he comes back, I'm leaving all the JFK out because sure. that's separate sure. storyline. You know, it's not in his regular life story. It's just come out recently, so... But it's easy to insert later. So after he uh, he goes to work for he does some work for Lefty Rosenthal. I know that that he uh, he had a job to blow up uh, one of his rivals' boats, and I can't remember the guy's name that he was trying to kill. He had a boat in Miami that was uh, named after his mistress, and he wanted the guy killed so he could take his mistress. Lefty wanted her. But I can't remember the name of the other gangster. Do you remember that the, the Lefty Rosenthal? You remember this, Scott? The with the he, Lefty Rosenthal hired my dad to blow up a boat and kill. In that podcast I sent you today, it's in there. 
So you'll hear a little bit of the story, but the guy had a boat named it after his mistress and the other gangster wanted the mistress. So he was going to plant a bomb on the boat and blow up the, when they were, she yeah, was out there. It, it was all played out in the movie Casino. Uh, it was the beef between uh, yeah. Tony Spilatro and, and Lefty Rosenthal. Tony Spilatro actually go. blew Lefty Rosenthal up. Right. Uh, yeah. Lefty Rosenthal survived it. And then yeah. uh, Lefty Rosenthal was actually working for the government that whole time. Uh, no one, nobody knew it until Lefty Rosenthal died. And then I think Lefty Rosenthal tried to take out a contract on Spilatro. Yeah, my dad was trying to was going to put a bomb on um, Spilatro's place, and there's kids there, so he refuses to do it. So he he puts the bomb in a way that it like semi goes off, so it looks like it's just a bad bomb, and they don't want it, you know, so because he already got paid for the job and everything. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, you know, it is what it is. So so you got that time frame where he's working for them, then uh, mysteriously. Out of the blue in like 1970, I can't remember five, I'm terrible with dates. He turns up in Venezuela working as the second in command of their, basically their spy organization, which is an amazing thing because he's not Venezuelan, first of all. He's Cuban. He's never lived in Venezuela. You're supposed to be a resident at least of a country there, every country has their own constitution and laws for working in the government. But I know for a fact, I heard of the lawyer talking about it, that it was like five years minimum. You know, so it, it was waived at the top. There was only two guys higher than him, the president and the vice president of Venezuela. Other than that, he had total control of all the airports in Venezuela. So what was happening was that he was shipping, they were shipping drugs from Venezuela into the U.S. and then shipping guns and money back to South America while he was there. And then while he's there doing that and working, the two other Cubans, three or two, three Cubans, who knows how many, uh, hatched a plot to blow up a Cuban airliner. So they a flight leaving from Barbados, Cuban, Cubana Air Flight 455 with 73 communists on board is blown up and uh, all hell breaks loose in Venezuela. Because my dad's there, he arrests Orlando Bosch, who is his nemesis from the days in Miami from Cuba. He believes Bosch to be a Batista, so he never wants him to take power. So he makes sure that he gets arrested. Jorge Luis Posada is the other one that gets arrested. He is also a CIA agent working for the spy network in Venezuela. So you see all these Cuban spies that are running the spy agency in Venezuela. I would love to see the job application my dad filled out <laughs> for that job. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, where do you? And we're hiring for spy agents for the spy agency in Venezuela. Please apply here. There's no such thing, you know. Yeah. Was that all off the books then? You think that was like a black ops? Do you think it wasn't even official? Maybe. My dad says that the the reason that they put him there was to be the conduit to allow things to happen. The agreement was that Venezuela was allowed to do whatever they wanted to do to destabilize or maintain countries that were their neighbors. So like Venezuela wanted to be able to, you know, Guinea or whatever those countries are. Colombia, a bunch of little, yeah. Right. On it, that whatever they wanted to do in those areas, the United States would not push back on them. Yeah. So that was the thing. And then the flow of arms and the flow of drugs were, were wide open through there. So it was, they were happy. Both sides were happy with that, except for the Cuban airliner exploding. So then... Every taste the fan, you get all these people that go down there to investigate prosecutors, um, investigative reporters. Taylor Branch went down there and did a huge article on my dad and that whole time that he spent down there. And it was on Harper's Bazaar magazine and Newsday at the time. So uh, he has to get out of Venezuela. So he disappears for like two months. Nobody knows where he is. They're thinking he's probably dead or something. And then he just turns up in Miami. Poof, back in my town <laughs> and free man walking the streets like nothing's going on. And everybody's like, that guy just blew up an airplane. I'm like, well, he would be in jail if he blew up an airplane, wouldn't he? So, you know, maybe something else is going on that we don't know about. Yeah, let me ask you about that. Do, do, you, do you think that the CIA had direct knowledge that they were going to blow up that airliner? That's the whole thing with these CIA plans and stuff like that. 
if you're a CIA agent, right, which Posada was known, my dad worked for the CIA. If while you're working for the CIA, you had a mission to do something and do it, is the CIA responsible? Right. Is there a phone number where you call and you say, hey, I'm going to blow up a Cuban airliner, go or no go? I don't think at that point they cared if the CIA gave the approval or not. They were CIA agents. So right. if they're getting by the CIA agents that they hatched their own plot. Now, no, why would the Cuba, why would the United States want to blow up a Cuban airliner? It does them no good. It did them no good. The ones who came out losing the most were the Cubans because they lost all backing from the U.S. to keep pushing against Cuba. That was basically the last time anybody tried to do anything against Cuba to overthrow the government or at least cause them problems. Yeah, that was actually from a public relations that actually generated sympathy for Castro and the Cuban government because it was an act of terrorism. They killed civilians. I mean, pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, it backfired totally. That was the thing. And it blew up his setup in Venezuela. So he had to get out of Venezuela. So he got burned. When he gets back to Miami, the CIA won't let him do any jobs. He's done. So he goes back to all his friends that he knows are drug dealers. And he says, hey, I'm a free agent. I can do whatever I want. And then he gets embedded with the uh, kingpins and the coke dealers and all that stuff at the Mutiny Hotel and all the, the stuff because he has all the connections to help them get the stuff in and out. And then he tells them, don't worry, if we get busted, I'll fix it. And yeah. everybody's like, well, how does he fix it? Well, he'll go in and he'll flip. Then after he flips, <laughs> he'll flip on the DA the day he's going in to testify. He'll switch a story. And before you know it, they're all free because... You can't trust uh, the witness. So they they always knew that he was going to figure it out. Now, if he didn't like you and you weren't his friend, you weren't going to get help. You were going down, which happened to a lot of people, which is one of the reasons he gets killed, which we'll get to. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And we, we talked about this with um, Robin uh, Farzad, who I know is a friend of yours, and he's, he's a friend of our program. We've had him on before. He wrote the great book, um, Hotel Scarface. and um, yeah, Which I'm hearing rumblings is possibly going to get a TV adaption. Oh, really? Yeah, we talked about it with him. Yeah. I'll give you some scoop. <laughs> yeah, we talked about it with him before, and he said that there were some things in the works, and I read something in um, one of the done. entertainment uh, periodicals oh. recently that said there's looks like there's a little momentum going oh. towards that. I'll give you a scoop. It's yeah, what are you hearing, Rick? <laughs> it's been sold to Netflix as a docuseries. Um, I'll be on it um, awesome. talking about my yeah, we were, that's already done, and I've got, I've got a project that I'm working on. Today, a podcast dropped from True Spies podcast. I sent you guys a link. You should listen to that. It's pretty good. Vanessa Kirby does the hosting on that, and uh, and then I've got some stuff coming up. So we're we're trying to get my dad's life story into a scripted yep. uh, series, or if not, a docu series. But we're working on something. So. But the, um that, that's that's pretty exciting. Um, but in uh, when we talked to um, uh, Robin, one thing that I found interesting, and if Scott, if you recall from the episode, that like in certain organized crime circles like the Italian mafia, if you know someone's that connected to the to the government, you, you sort of stay away from that person, right? You you're like they've got kryptonite, right? Mm -hmm. But in, in the in the cocaine cowboy world, they viewed Monkey Morales his his government contacts as as a positive thing. They were like, they didn't worry about snitching or anything. They were like, this this dude's connected to the feds. He can, and he can open up <laughs> corridors on right. both sides of the law. Right, right. So it's kind of interesting contrast. Yeah, once you're that connected and you can't be arrested for something because the information you have is more valuable than putting you away for what you've done, you become an asset to the drug dealers and the cops. So that's what he was. He could do whatever he wanted because he knew as soon as they came and arrested him, he said, call this guy. And they're going to tell you to let him go. Um, he was pulled over. I'll tell you a quick story. I got a friend who used to be a cop. I still talk to him. He pulled my dad over and, uh, and popped the trunk. And my dad had a bunch of weapons and shit in the back of the <laughs> trunk. And this guy, I think it was like his second year on the force. And he's thinking to himself, man, I've just made a collar of a lifetime. Boom, boom, boom. I got this guy. And then all of a sudden he gets a call from his lieutenant to move. close that, close that <laughs> trunk. And he was so mad, and he's still he's still mad about it until today. But yeah, that's the kind of pull that he had. It, it didn't matter, you know. You, you, whatever happened to him, 
he was walking out. So. Yeah, I think uh, I don't want to get too editorial on my political soapbox here, but I'm just for what it's worth, a uh, ferocious critic of the war on drugs, and I'm and I'm against the war on drugs for a lot of reasons. But, we lo- we but, lost it, by the way. Yeah, the drugs won. <laughs> we lost. Yeah, drugs won. Drugs won. But <laughs> but but part of it are stories like this because this is not the only example of we know a lot of drug lords and drug dealers were. CIA assets, DIA, DEA, DEA FBI, State ATF. Department, right. And um, a, in a lot of cases, this connects to the Iran-Contra stuff, Noriega, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. They knew they were dealing heroin Southeast Asia yeah. during Vietnam. And so, you know, they'll arrest a lot of nickel and dime dealers in the United States and fill up our prisons. But, like, the, the, the big the suppliers— The bigger you are, the more opportunities you're going to have yeah, so, to wiggle out of So the, of the, there's a lot of hypocrisy in the war on drugs, yeah. and I don't think a lot of your average— per, I don't think a lot of, like, just your average citizen realizes— well, There's quite a bit of nuance. They think it's just the good guys are the cops and the bad yeah. guys are the drug dealers— and it's not it's it's way more fucked up. It's multi layered. And I just I don't want to digress too far away from uh, our subject, but I, I just want to point out when we're talking about the um approach by the cocaine cowboys towards who to trust and who not to trust yeah. and their um opinions of of the government and law enforcement. You, you gotta under and 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 uh Rick, I'm interested in, in, in your perspective on this. So this is a situation where most of the drug lords that they are, most of the cocaine cowboys that they are hunting are either guys that didn't grow up in America or came here at a younger age. And I think that from whether they're coming from Colombia or Cuba or Bolivia or Peru, it, it kind of informs them uh, it informs a criminal or, or coming from those roots, you have a different perspective of good guys, bad guys. Oh, yeah. Than you do if you're just uh, been an American criminal your whole life yeah. and the U.S. government is coming after is coming right. after That's you. a good point. Yep. That's a really good point. Different rules. Right. So, like, example, different rules of approach. Cubans, they were drug dealing, whatever. We didn't. They didn't. I say we. I should say we. Yeah. We, uh, you never, even though we, they killed a bunch of people, they never killed families. So you never put a bomb in a car when there's a wife and a kid. Then you get the Colombians coming. That's when things get nasty. They're killing everybody. They don't believe in, in any letting anything slide. So you have a different type of mentality on, you know, where I'm taking this, yeah. how, how hardcore I'm going to make this. You know that the Americans started it and are running it, and then after they get to a certain point, they take the head off that snake because he gets too big. So, like you were saying, you know, they, the CIA, the DEA, and all of them contribute just as much as all those yeah. bad guys did problem to bringing it in. They just wait for you to get to a certain size that you're like, and you're unmanageable, off with that one, and then they just get replaced because it's just a cycle. There's just the next one in line to the next one in line. So, I mean, is the American government just as guilty as anybody that grew it, processed it, and smuggled it? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. You don't think they could have stopped it in the 70s and 80s if they really wanted to? That's a different story. But the yeah. war on drugs, big thing for the streets of the United States, that was bullshit. Because the, the object is to stop it where it is. Like you do, the, the government is all hell-bent on communism and anything overseas. You're not going to let it get here, right? Why would you wait? till the problem is on your streets, to then start the war. The war should start where the enemy is, which would be in South America for drugs. Yeah. So, no, I, I, I agree with that. And um, there's um, uh, a lot of um, hypocrisy. And, and, you know, we see we saw that with, I like your analogy there of cutting the head off the snake because when the person gets unmanageable, we, we see that with Noriega, we see that with Pablo, where um, both both of those guys, especially Noriega, but even Pablo to a certain extent, had ties to U.S. counterintelligence 
And and once they get too big for their britches, as the cliche goes. I mean, there's a picture of <laughs> Pablo Escobar standing outside the White House. Oh, yeah. And it right. was in the 80s. This wasn't like in the 60s when right. he was a kid. And when he was a nobody. This was right. like in 1982 or 83 when he was still one of the he, – maybe he, he hadn't reached the headlines where every American knew who Pablo Escobar was like by the late but 80s. But the government knew 90s. who he was. But, I mean, believe in 1982, 83, he's one of the biggest uh, yeah. global narco czars in, in, the, in the world – and he's, uh, you know, taking a tourist trip to, to Washington, yeah. D.C. He feels comfortable right. enough to, <laughs> to walk the streets of the, the United the States. The point I was making with Monkey Morales and, and maybe the comfort factor with some of those cocaine cowboys bringing, in, bringing him into their midst is just that those cocaine cowboys, their um, posture or, or, or their historical knowledge of uh, government and criminals, the the lines were much more yeah. blurred well, 100%. Than, they, than they would be if you were someone that, you know, was growing up uh, in Brooklyn sure. or growing up uh, in, in, on the south side of Chicago. Yeah, that's a great point. Plus all those people knew each other. Right. Yeah, they grew up in... So even though they, you know, they worked different sides of the fence or whatever, they would trust each other over anybody else. So if there was a deal going down and it was two Cubans and a Colombian, I don't care who the Cuban is in front of me. I trust that motherfucker's not going to do me harm before he does harm to the Colombian. So you always have that comfort factor, you know, within, you know. So monkeys, monkeys works both sides. So what? We can benefit from that. So that's a good reason to have him in the fold because even though we might screw some of us, some of us are going to go golden and they're all willing to take that chance. Yeah, and it's um, but it's definitely a precarious uh, world because yeah, once your value is is used up, um, then you really have to watch your back, right? Well, not not just the other gangsters, but but the but the the government too, right? Yeah, you know, see at the end, so towards the end of uh, my dad's life, he uh, he had uh, started talking about writing a book, all the stuff you don't do. Um, he gave an interview to a Venezuelan TV station where he talked about the whole Venezuela thing and blowing up the airliner and they asked him, you know, don't you, aren't you, aren't you like, uh, doesn't it upset you that 73 people died? And he said, 73, 273 less communists <laughs> on the planet. Jeez. He showed no remorse whatsoever for that. <laughs> Damn. Um, and he started talking about writing a book and, you know, getting his memoirs of his life, blah, blah, blah. So that did, that probably didn't sit well with a lot of people. And uh, he was already had enemies left and right that were trying to kill him. So he uh, at that point, they put him in a witness protection program and uh, they sent him off to, I think it was Brooklyn. And uh, he lasted 30 days in Brooklyn. <laughs> And uh, he's like, I can't sit here in Brooklyn the rest of my life, you know, working for a living. He just couldn't do it. <laughs> And uh, I guess, you know, he he was, you know, he drank and he was partying, you know, so he wasn't, uh, he had a lot of PTSD, I'm sure. By that time, he was paranoid, always, you know, people are looking for you. So he came back to Miami and they took away his witness protection. So at that point, everybody in town knows he's got no protection. So then he goes out one night with a certain lady that's already been discussed. There's a mega connection with everybody involved that night that leads to the conclusion that there's no way it was just a bar fight because everybody that had played a role that night had a reason to want my dad dead. So that's why we say that it wasn't uh, just a, a bar brawl where they fought over something and something. He got shot. The person he was arguing with, the owner of the bar, was in front of him. He gets shot in the back of the head from behind. So it wasn't even the person he was arguing with that shot him. So And he never pulled it. This is 1982? Correct. December. Well, and it's interesting that, that Rick is pointing this out because if you if you just do some, like, surface research, the, the media and the police just said it was a bar brawl, it got out of hand, a guy got shot, end of story, nothing to see here. And so yeah. this, is, this is pretty important that, that you're challenging that, that premise, that, no, actually this is a pretty sketchy thing that went down here. Yeah, well, the guy who owns the bar, Roger, he's under indictment because of my dad for drug trafficking. The, the woman that my dad is with all night, she's 
the ex-wife of my dad killed her first husband. Her second husband is in jail because my dad put him there. And her third husband is an ex-cop who's a friend of my dad. So she was the town. Everybody, you know, if you wanted to have a good time that night, she would go out with you. So she took them out drinking. They went out drinking. They hit four or five bars. Then they show up at the guy who wants them the most dead in town's bar. So I don't know why he went there. Maybe he just went there thinking, ah, fuck it, you know. So the fight, there's multiple. Somebody said they called him a fag, and then another one says that she walked out without paying, and he got mad because that's your ex-wife. Why does she have to pay for drinks at the bar? And that's what they were arguing over. My dad's, If my dad wants to kill Roger, he would have killed him, and nobody would have ever found Roger again. Right. So there's no reason my dad wasn't there to kill Roger. You know? so, and he never pulled a gun. So... All those people converge with the same, you know, thing in mind. How can we get him here late at night, drunk, and we can start an argument? Bodyguard, you know, bouncer shoots him, says, hey, the cop actually said in the paper, if you read the paper, with as many people as wanted him dead, if they tell me it was a bar fight, it was a bar fight. Yeah. I don't have time to go chasing ghosts. Right. That was the lead detective. Yeah. That tells me it, it, there's no, there was, it was two days, boom, no problem. So it's okay. Family takes care of family. Yeah. You know, that that's interesting because that's a similar, ironically, that's a, a similar argument that, that Monkey Morales is making when he's saying, oh, there's, there's 200 less communists on, on the planet earth. That's sort of the attitude of this cop is like, Hey, another, another Cuban drug dude is dead. So fuck it, whatever. Coming from it, that's not his job to do it that way. No, that's right. The only thing. Of course, no, that's a problem, yeah. No, I, I agree. At that point, we knew there was not going to be an investigation, so, um, so Roger wasn't for the world after that. So, do you, so okay, so let, let's, let's unpack this a little bit more. So, do you think it's, it's, it's obviously impossible to get into his, his psyche that evening, but he's partying with this woman. He knows that, that she's connected to people that, that probably mean him harm or at least don't yeah. like him. For yeah. him to do that, do you think it's just sort of like a, a hubris or kind of machismo? Like, hey, I'm Monkey Morales. I can handle myself. I'm not going to sweat this kind of thing. Yeah. There's two thoughts. I've, and I've asked a couple of people that knew him, you know, that question. My, the, I asked, the first question I asked uh, Lieutenant Diaz, who was in front of us, was, I... Uh, from the way he was talking to us at the end over the last year of his time, he knew like he was, it was something was going to happen. He could feel it. But I think he, a little bit of hubris, yes. But more than that, I think it was like, I'm not going to run and hide from anybody else anymore. And if they kill me, they kill me. You know what I mean? It's tired of hiding. Yeah. I'm tired of not living a normal life. So I'm just going to go out there and have a good time. And then they got, and they got to him. Everybody, you know, everybody's gettable. Everybody's gettable. Until the biggest, smartest spy in the world, it doesn't matter. One day walking down the street, somebody walks up behind you and puts a bullet in your head. Well, let's it doesn't go, matter. Let's go back to one of our favorite films of all time, Godfather Part Two, with Michael tells Tom, you disappoint me. If there's one thing history has taught us, if anything is certain, <laughs> it's that you could kill anyone, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so, so the name of the no one's uh, untouchable. The name of the bar he was killed at was called uh, Rogers on the Green. It was in Key Biscayne, and then right. Roger, who owned Rogers on the Green, was killed two years later. That's correct. They found Roger dead two years later, and. Uh, Nobody was ever arrested for it. And uh, my uncle, my dad's older brother, um, on his deathbed, confessed that he's the one that took Roger out for what happened to my dad that night. So it was like a vendetta. Well, it was uh, a vendetta. You can call it whatever you want. We call it family business. When did your your uncle die? My uncle died about 10 years ago, I would say. So it's been a little bit. Open case, though. It's still considered an open case? It was still, I don't know if they finally closed it based on the book, but they've never called anybody to talk to anybody. But what, what about, and then there wasn't a lawyer, there was a lawyer. That yeah, that, that's what I want to ask him about. Yeah. 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 They his killer. And, uh, the other guy was my dad's right hand man, uh, Rafael Villaverde, 
he disappeared on a boating trip and he's never been found. So he's like one of my dad's closest associates. He was one of the ones on his team back in the JFK time. Whenever you want to talk about that, we can do I was that. Gonna say, I was going to say, let's spend our last 20 minutes um, delving into the JFK assassination conspiracy. Uh, I don't, I don't say that lightly. Uh, I don't really know anybody that can look at the JFK assassination honestly and, and believe that it was a, a, a lone shooter, uh, a lone wolf that Lee Harvey Oswald was, was acting, uh, you know, by his own volition and, and wasn't being puppeted. Uh, and based on an interview you recently did, um, you discussed the fact that your father admitted to you that he was in Dallas uh, that same week that, that JFK was assassinated. Yeah. When my, uh, in the last year of my dad's life, we would uh, off my brother and I say we, my older brother, we would go out to the Everglades and shoot. He would train us. He would teach us how to shoot. He was always taking us out. And that's the one thing he was always training us. And uh, we were, he was, it was the last year of his life. He was a, uh, you could tell he was paranoid, but he said, he told us, you know, that he was worried about whether they were going to kill him or not and all that. And then he said, you know, is there anything you want to know about my life? And my brother was the one who asked, he said, JFK and the Oswald thing, what do you know about it? And he goes, well, I can tell you, JF, I can tell you Oswald wasn't a shooter because he couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. I saw him shoot myself at a CIA training camp where I was helping train snipers and that guy had a terrible shot. So there's no way he could have pulled it off, first of all. And then he said, and second, I was in Dallas. I didn't shoot him, but I don't know who shot him. We were just sent there as a what he said, termed a cleaning crew, which we took as if something goes wrong and you have to kill somebody else, there's people there waiting to do those things. So they were sent to Dallas. They waited. Made, after Kennedy gets assassinated, they make a phone call, and they're told, go home. That's all that, and they just all went back home. Four of them, and my understanding is there was more than just those four. I'm a, I'm not sure. I think there was like three or four different Cuban teams in Dallas that day that other people have reported on. Not that I know of anything that I've just heard those reports myself. So it doesn't go far from the, what my dad said that there were teams in position for different things. You know, different Plan B, Plan C, whatever happens. Because let's say the snipers miss, and they only wound him. Now you're going to have to kill the snipers. You're going to have to kill the people that. So, and and I'm going to say I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I don't. I just this is a conversation that I had, and I, my closest friends knew it growing up. They'd always accuse me. They would they would tell me, "Oh, your dad was probably the second shooter." And I'd be like, "You know what? He could have done it. I don't know, but uh, I don't know." So, but that's all I you know. That's what I got. It's just that one conversation that we had about those things. I whole I wholeheartedly believe that Can Kennedy was murdered in a conspiracy between the CIA oh. and the mafia. Um, yeah. I don't have, I have very few doubts. Three shots. He hit, that guy couldn't have hit. And can you imagine that shot? A watermelon moving down the road with what he had, <laughs> where he was and the ability that he had. And he hits it two out of three times. I mean, I'm sorry, but <laughs> every master sniper will tell you that as from, and they have his uh, military records, so they know his proficiency with a rifle and how bad it was. Now, the, the thing that makes him a patsy is what the CIA did. All these places where he showed up visibly. Yeah. If you're doing something, you're not going to show your face and stuff. But no, he's showing up. They got so footage of him in New Orleans handing out pamphlets. Just, no, they they just randomly happen to have footage of this guy, right? That, that, that all, the, the, all the broadcast networks are getting, like, within hours of, of either him killing uh, Kennedy or, or uh, Ruby killing him. You're seeing video on NBC and CBS of him from, like, you know, two or, two or three years before that. He did a television show, too. Yeah. They got him going into the Cuban embassy, right. the Russian embassy, Mexico. He defected for he defected for a couple of years to Russia and was able to come back. And and it was just he just landed and and went back to his life in America. And it was at the height of the Cold War. There's no way that that would have passed muster. Nobody's watching him or keeping an eye on him. Right? Bullshit. They they were they were grooming him so he was visible to to the public so that they had all these oh here look Russia. Cuban embassy, you know, he's a communist. He's a communist. He wants to be a communist. 
But that was just that was my belief from what my dad told me and stuff. He was being groomed to be the patsy that and, he was. And then the 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 Soviets were convinced, and I think they were they were right to be convinced because Oswald wasn't the only one. They we they they knew that that the United States were sending people over claiming to want to defect to the Soviet Union because they were spies. <laughs> and, and Oswald they, took a Russian wife and right. brought her back with him to the States. And they, but the, the KGB the whole time suspected that Oswald was a plant, yeah. was, that he wasn't a genuine true believer. Well, so now we have the Morales family telling us that uh, Monkey Man Morales was actually with Lee Harvey Oswald in the years before Kennedy was assassinated at a CIA training facility being trained as a sniper. Now, yeah. tell me if I'm wrong, but the, the United States, you know, with all the documents that have been declassified, uh, I know Biden has, uh, has now decided not to declassify yeah. some of the documents that people thought they'd be able to get their hands on. But it's never been proven or admitted uh, that, that, that Oswald was a CIA asset, has it? Well, there's a there's an interesting book I've read, and uh, shout out to John Newman, and he he's a political scientist. He's he's not some conspiracy kook. He wrote this book, Oswald and the CIA: the the documented truth about the unknown relationship between the U.S. government and the alleged killer of JFK. It's a ponderous title, but and by the way, this this book is is not a rip roaring read. I mean, it's a very dry, difficult book to get into because it is so sober. It's not this fantastic. It it's just looking at national security archives, things that have been declassified, and he makes a powerful case that yes, Oswald was an asset uh, or an intel an intel agent. Um, was it naval intelligence? Was it CIA? You, you know, it's still kind of it's still kind of murky. But almost certainly, he was an intelligence asset of some government agency. He's an asset as they were going to use him in, in the if we need a patsy for something or if we need a scapegoat for something because they knew what he was they were doing with him. I mean, he had, he had, he had top security clearance in Japan when he was there. And so, what 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 low level nobody has that kind of top-level clearance. At, and, who at, and who killed him? Jack yeah. Ruby, a known mob, uh, mafia That's also associate. Conspic- right. That's also and, and we, we know that, you know, I call them the, the Suncoast Mafia Dons, but we know that Santo Traficante and Carlos Marcello, uh, the godfathers of Florida and Louisiana, respectively, not to mention the, the, the Sevillas, um, I believe, yeah. uh, in, in, in Dallas, um, you know, these were guys that were working with the CIA uh, during the during the during the Bay of Pigs and everything that was going on uh, to, back in the early sixties. And to kill Castro. Yeah, I'll give you I'll give you my my theory on this with the Cubans. Okay, so there was a plot to kill Kennedy that was supposed to happen in Miami. It's known somebody sent a card or something saying they were going to kill him. The Cubans wanted to kill Kennedy in Miami, but they couldn't because they knew that it would set off a war because they would blame. Castro, and then the U.S. would invade Cuba, and then the Russians would fight, sort of start a war. So they weren't allowed, is the way it was put to me, to carry off the execution in Miami. So they waited till Dallas. The people that carried out the execution were probably a Cuban Cubans that were anti JFK and anti U.S. for not backing us in the Bay of Pigs, and then not following through on going to Cuba and taking Castro out. And they were they were being controlled and paid by the American industrial machine. Whoever you want to call it, it's just like in Russia. You have powerful, rich people. In Russia, they call them oligarchs. oligarchs. Here, here we call them billionaires. <laughs> it sounds nicer than an oligarch, but that's what it is. That's who was controlling, that's who controls the CIA. It's the money... And whoever has the power is controlling the people. They can pay them to do whatever they want. And that's what the CIA is, an assassination agency for whoever is in power. They don't answer to the government of the United States. They don't have to go to Congress and say what they did. They just blow off. Yeah, so you said that your father was was uh, coined uh, the term, uh, you know, cleanup crew. You could maybe say that the CIA's entire existence is just one giant cleanup crew, <laughs> just to keep, you know, keep everything, uh, you know, uh, keep keep whatever you don't want to reach the surface. 
You you, yeah. you you dispatch the CIA and they make it disappear. Yeah, that's what it is. In addition so to being an intelligence gathering operation. It's a running theory. It's not just my own. I mean, if you know, if you followed any of the uh, Oliver Stone theory, that's his theory to the nutshell that uh, from the first, uh, if you watch the Nixon movie, he brings it up big time in the Nixon movie where Nixon loses to JFK and then the GOP powers that back Nixon are trying to get him to to let the Cubans kill Kennedy. He, he spells it out in, in that movie, and he's not far from the truth. It was more than likely Cubans hired by, trained and hired by CIA that that were involved in that in that plan. And he's got a John, I believe he's got a Johnny Rosselli character. Uh, I don't, I can't remember if it's uh, JFK or, or Nixon, but Tony Lobianco, uh, from the fame from, from the French Connection movie, um, plays Johnny Rosselli, who was the Chicago mob's representative on the West Coast for 30, 40 years, handsome Johnny, but was also a CIA asset involved in, uh, yeah. you know, the, 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 the assassination attempt on Castro that the mob and CIA were all involved in. He was the point man. Yeah, and Rosselli... Uh, and this could bring us into Jimmy Hoffa as well, but I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But, you know, Rosselli ended up uh, floating in Biscayne Bay uh, in a in a oil drum in the summer of 1976 uh, while he was on the verge of testifying in front of uh, Congress uh, to, to go over uh, their Operation Mongoose as well. <laughs> Jimmy Hoffa disappeared uh, when he was on the verge of testifying in front of the Operation Mongoose Committee and Sam Giancana was murdered. Uh, in the days or weeks before he was supposed to testify in front of that committee, and they are all—they're all connected by not just mob stuff, but by by cat by Cuba. And there is just deep within everything: mob, politics, and drug world, personal stuff. Yeah, mob, politics, drugs, CIA. It's—it's uh, it's quite a witch's brew. <laughs> um, Rick, did your father ever talk about socializing or doing any business with any Italian mafia figures? No, he's just, all I know is that he worked for Trot for a lefty for a while. That's the only thing I knew about him as far as that goes. But he knew all the players down there. So Traficante, they knew Traficante was out of Tampa, but he still had a presence uh, in Miami. Yeah. He was Cuba hiding by that time because once Castro falls and Traficante has a problem with the U.S. government and, and whatnot. And then you also have, I can't remember the name of the one that's trying to get to Israel. That was Meyer Lansky. Ireland, who, who funded this is now. I am. I am a. Uh, you know. I'm a Jewish. I'm uh, proud of my Jewish yeah. heritage. I actually have uh, quite a bit of family connections to not just the underworld, but Meyer Lansky specifically. Uh, my great aunt was Meyer's goddaughter, um, and a lot of my cousins spent quite a deal uh, of time in their youth with Meyer Lansky, and uh, I've always. This conundrum or or this uh, the situation where where Meyer Lansky, I'm 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 digressing here a little bit, but Meyer, Meyer Lansky finances the state of Israel. I mean, literally gets together the finances to put the state of Israel together after World War II, um, gives them their homeland back. Uh, you know, nation builds right in, you know, uh, with his money and his power uh, and then wants to retire there uh, and live out his final years and, and Israel wouldn't let him uh, in the country after the fact yeah. that he gave them their country. If there's a, I don't know, I don't know what, I don't know if that's an oxymoron or, or uh, just a, a riddle wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a puzzle. Yeah. I don't understand why, but, but that's that's real deep for me. The, the Harvey Keitel did a movie. Yeah, it just came out. Yeah, put, it just came out about uh, Lansky's final days in Miami. Did either yeah, one of I you guys that. see that? Did you? No, I, I haven't seen it yet. Did you see it, Rick? Is, I is, saw it. It was good. It was good. It's talking to the writer of his biography, telling him the whole his whole life story. It's pretty good, actually. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? I, I just want to rewind for a moment because you brought up something interesting that I think is lost. In a lot of like when we talk about the conspiracy or potential or alleged conspiracy to kill Kennedy, and we we think of the mafia and the CIA, but I think in a lot of ways that's the sort of um, carrying things out operationally. You know, you talked about the the military industrial complex, and I and I think in terms of who's pulling the strings, you know, the guy behind the guy behind the guy. 
I think it's a lot of those right wing industrialists in Texas, those big oil guys. I, I think I think I think those are some of the dudes yeah. back then especially. Yeah, right. That was the power. Yeah, I mean, and if we want to name names, it's a certain family that owns a, a football team in Kansas City right now. That the people can look it up. Uh, the the Hunt family had some pretty yeah. sketchy connections in Texas to to uh, the Cuban groups, the military industrial complex, the CIA, and they hated Kennedy. Hated him. They were they were rabid anti communist. Kennedy was not going to do Vietnam. He was going to end all that. There was no more wars. And the the the, the, the right wing industrial fighting machine wanted to produce weapons and start wars against communists. And he was saying yeah. at the yeah. time he was saying, "Well, look what look at that advice you gave me with the Bay of Pigs. It was a giant disaster. I'm not going to listen to you anymore." That was what was coming out of Kennedy's mouth in sixty two, sixty three. They were going to lose their asses and and money that that between oil and military weapons production. But he was telling. I mean, he was telling his military advisors, "I trusted you." in the Bay of Pigs, and it was one of the biggest political disasters uh, in recent memory. So why should I trust you anymore? Well, they, of course, they blamed, they blamed him, so there right. was a lot of finger-pointing. Yeah. But just for the, you know, historical accuracy, I think the reasons why the, the, the military-industrial complex and the, those right-wing industrialists in Texas would potentially want Kennedy murdered, it's really complicated, and, there, and there's, there's a lot of different motives. But I don't, I don't think we should portray characterized JFK as some kind of dove. I mean, he was a cold warrior. He was an anti-communist. And and he, he I think I think he he would have probably gotten us into Vietnam eventually. So I, I'm just I'm just trying to sort of like debunk the kind of idea that that JFK yeah. was some kind of like peaceful person that I think I think I think a lot of it was like the 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 conspiracy conspirators to to get rid of Kennedy, they wanted their own guy to do that. Not JFK, you know, if that makes sense, like they, they wanted and and who was their own, who was their own guy? Well, who was the guy from Texas who happened to be the vice president of right? like LBJ? He was connected to all those, all those guys. All those guys. And there, there he was, and he was weak. He wasn't a strong yeah. will person. So they could, they could push him around. Yeah. They couldn't push, hey, JFK doesn't come from their world. So he wasn't, JFK could tell them. I don't give a shit how rich you are, man. No, that that's right. And I think I think there was a big divide between the sort of the JFK, which represented this kind of East Coast Ivy League elitist, and the other faction in terms of they're both parts of the ruling class, but the you know parts of the ruling class can disagree with each other and have you know rivalries and things like that. And the and the other was the uh, what we're talking about the Sun Coast, this emerging industrialist, big business people connected to the military industrial complex, connected to the oil industry, places like Texas, Arizona, Florida, and they they didn't want the East Coast Ivy League elitists to call the shots. They wanted to call the shots. So I think a lot of this is like was sort of like infighting between different factions of the ruling class. So that, I mean, that's just that's just my view. Well, and then they use. The fact that he has all these enemies to their advantage. Yeah. So, yeah. Cubans oh, hate him. No, that's right. Mafia hate him. <laughs> yeah. Cubans hate him. The mafia hates him. The whites hate him because he's, you know, civil doing rights. civil rights. Yeah. Other and all. Got all these people that hate him. They all want him dead. The CIA comes in and says, well, hell, I can use Peter and Paul to do Tom's work and we yeah. get out of this night. Yeah. And everyone's right. Everyone's, everyone gets something out of this. And uh, I mean, it, it's interesting because. I mean, there are documents that can link Oswald to some of those, uh, you know, uh, anti-Castro Cuban uh, activities. So the idea that your dad was training him is very plausible to me. Everybody's all, you know, the documents, the documents. My dad was questioned by the uh, committee on assassinations and whatnot. So there's like 400 pages, I'm told, uh, that are part of the documents that haven't been released. But I tell everybody, listen, guys, don't get too crazy on the documents because when my dad sat down, I guarantee you he didn't say, oh, yeah, yeah. I went and I shot Kennedy. And <laughs> sure. Down there and he was waiting at the corner. No, these guys are all spies and murderers. They're going to be like, I, I was at home eating dinner with my wife and kids. Yeah. <laughs> the papers that you have to look for are the, the government papers that are connected to each other and who are they talking about. Because that's the only way you're going to paint a picture because the people that they investigated 
aren't going to admit to doing anything. So no, I, I agree. Gonna, yeah, so, I, mean, I, I agree a hundred percent. And not only that, how many years now to falsify them, destroy them? Uh, do you are you sure they're the real original ones when they do let them out? They're gonna. They've had all the time in the world to manufacture anything they want to to release those documents. So either it's so bad they can't fake it and they're just not going to release them ever or they're waiting for so much time to go by that nobody gives a shit no more, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that that's the real challenge with if, if you're someone like, you know, I, I agree with, with Scott that I find it unlikely that Oswald acted alone. So, I mean, how do you prove that, though? Because I agree with you. On the one hand, I, I want everything to be de declassified. Don't get me wrong. I, I want the government to release as much documentation as possible. Release it all. Re you, know, don't, you know, don't redact it. But even if they do that, I agree with you. You're still not going to find a document that says signed by yeah. uh, CIA. Who would have been Angleton? Who, who, I don't know who would have been the, the head of the CIA then, like, that says, okay, we're going to contract uh, the CIA to kill uh, uh, and the Cubans to kill Kennedy, and we're going to frame Oswald. You're never going to find that. That document doesn't exist. Exactly. <laughs> right? It never did. That's not going to come out. No, that's not so. how it works. You're right. This world is too murky. Like there, there is shit like that. There is no paper trail uh, for that. That's the whole point. Um, yeah. When I say off the books and black ops and things like that, the only thing you can see is what they're trying to hide. And by the if there was nothing to hide. Anything that's in those papers is long old, old news. Let's go. No, I and I think yeah. I think what we can do is we can we can look at circumstantial evidence, look at wh whatever documentation we can get our hands on, and you know firsthand testimonials from people like your father, and we can try to, as researchers try to connect the dots ourselves and and make a compelling case. But I agree with you. I don't I don't think we'll ever you know the use the cliche smoking gun. I I don't think we'll ever we'll ever yeah. be able to to to. Prove this 100%. I just don't think that's going to happen. Nobody will be alive when they release those papers that was alive during any of the time. Yeah. So, like, you know, like me, I was born in 63. So, I'm like, I won't be alive when they release anything of those papers. Nobody will. It'll be a uh, hundred years. Who, who knows? Yeah. Even if they do it then. By then, it won't matter because nobody will be alive to talk that knew anything about it to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and even even then they might not release it just because there's this institutional legacy of like you have to protect you have to protect yeah. the because because when when we want to the, the next time we want to kill a JFK <laughs> we don't we don't want the precedent of right like having this paper trail of of uh, that 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 this is possible this kind of conspiracy is possible so um, Rick tell us about what what's going on with you now like you, you're talking about telling your dad's story can you tell us about the different multimedia projects you have working on I, I don't know what you're at liberty to discuss but maybe you can share with our audience yeah well i'm working with robin on his story as i told you guys that's going to be coming out as a docuseries so i'll be involved in that one um as an interviewee and then i'm also working with a writer sean oliver is his name um he wrote him and i wrote my dad's life story over the COVID time so we wrote for like almost a year um to try to get this on television. So we've got a, an option, a shopping option, and we've got conversations going on with different entities, I guess you would call them. I don't know what you would call them. And uh, there's discussions to get this, try to get this done to a TV show. So working hard on that uh, TV series, maybe a two or three season series or something like that. Two or three seasons, I think you're doing yourself a, an injustice. You could, you could get five or 10 seasons out of your dad. I agree. We went in trying to sell it as a limited series just to get it sold. And we wrote nine episodes. And then when we read the nine episodes with our team, they looked at us and went, yeah, you guys stuck everything in nine? They looked, you got 18 to 36 here at least. <laughs> yeah. so, so we felt good about that because we knew we had a lot, of, uh, a lot of material. So we were happy to hear that. But just it's a, it's a complicated thing because it's a period piece. And if you're going to do it for that many years, you know, we're talking about a lot of money. So you got to get, we got, but I was going to say, um, Spyscape Museum, which is out of New York, they have a website called Spyscape on Twitter and on Instagram. They're a museum about espionage and whatnot. They're based out of the UK. They're, they have a lot of 007 James Bond material. The, the podcast dropped today. It's hosted by, the narrator is Vanessa Kirby, the actress from Mission Impossible, I think six, seven, and eight or something. 
And uh, it's really good, and it's a condensed version of my dad. What I just did here is a condensed version with her and a Cuban actor playing my dad's part. So it's really, really good. I heard it today, and that dropped today. And that, you know, so hopefully we're we're working with them to see if maybe we can get something done. They might uh, take the project on themselves. Who knows? Yeah, Spyscape.com. I'm looking at the website now. It looks pretty cool. And uh, some of the stuff you're talking about is is on there. Um, well, yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that would be awesome. I mean, I think the, the more information we can get out there about your dad, it's a, it's a fascinating story. You know, Rick, what I got to do, um, and we can talk about this more off air, is uh, I'm on the board of advisors at the Mafia Museum in uh, Las yeah. Vegas. I think, sure. uh, you know, your dad and, and you are, or obviously your dad's story and you, uh, I wish your dad could be here <laughs> almost 40 years later. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it would be tailor-made for, for yeah. a program at the Mom Museum. That's, I'd love to try to hook that up. Yeah, anything, anything. I'm game for everything. So. I mean, I think there could be a whole exhibit. Yeah. Like, they yeah. could have a whole JFK stuff. Forget, I mean, yeah, the JFK stuff, but I'm saying I think there could be a whole, uh, you know, uh, part of a room, uh, you know, they have those exhibit rooms. I could see a whole part of a room being dedicated to Monkey Morales. Yeah, because you got the drug, the right. cocaine, and just, cowboy stuff. You could do stuff. a whole, like, you can get mementos, you could do, like, a, a chart, you could do, like, a lot of graphics, and I know they're all into that kind of stuff, so I, I'd love to make an introduction. Yeah, anything you guys uh, can think of that would help uh, yourselves and myself and get the word out and get the stories out is uh, what we're here for, right? So, Well, we really appreciate your time, Rick, and um, I'm glad that we finally were able to have you on and Mother Nature cooperated this time. So, <laughs> and, yeah, uh, and there's still, I mean, there's still a lot of other parts of, the, of your dad's story that we didn't even get to, so I hope you'll consider coming back on the show. I, I think our audience uh, will like this, but... Um, anything else you want to pop? Yeah, anything else before we sign off? I'm good, man. I just here here to help and uh, talk. Like to get the story out. All right, Rick. Well, we appreciate your time. Good luck with everything, brother. And uh, let's stay in touch. And uh, thanks for everyone listening to the Regional Gangsters podcast. Uh, I'm Jimmy Bucciolato. Scott Bernstein. We'll see you next time. Out. Oh.